Well, I'd like to start this sermon out with a a round of applause for Billy. (laughs) Uh, Billy, who read our first reading today, our first lesson. It was uh, very evident that you prepared, so thank you. (laughs) Not something easy to read, all those names. As we continue on with our sermon series in Genesis, we're walking with Abram, the patriarch, And we're looking today at Genesis chapter 14. There's a lot to go through today because there's a lot of historical material, um, which, believe it or not, I have truncated. Um, And as you are opening up to Genesis chapter 14, I just want to review us at what's gone on. We've seen God make these promises to Abram. Promises of land, of offspring, of blessing, to be a blessing of great prosperity. And so far, as we've gone through this series, we've seen, thank you Deacon Mark, we've seen promise after promise, time after time rather, these promises of God assaulted by different things. That's very intentional. So back in chapter 11, at the very lineage of Abram, we saw God's promise of covenant assaulted by paganism. Then we saw famine as a challenge to Abram in chapter 12. Abram himself became a challenge to God's promise when instead of relying on God, he relied on his own cunning and wealth and fled to Egypt during the famine. And then just last week in chapter 13, we saw strife as a challenge to God's promise, right? The strife between Lot and Abram's herdsmen as they returned from Egypt. And that theme continues with this morning's reading. Here we see a challenge to God's promises to bring about his, his salvation through the line of Abram. And that challenge is war and a wicked king. War and a wicked king. So hopefully at this point you've opened up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, or you've opened up your order of service. Um, the selection begins on page 1. And here we are, stepping into a world torn apart by war and conflict. This is in the late 2000s before Christ. As Billy got the experience of reading those names this morning to us, it's tempting for us to zone out in the first ten verses of this passage, right? We just kind of start off and go, and then we're like, oh, whatever. I can't pronounce or understand what's going on, and we jump. But resist the urge to do that. Just as President Biden, just as Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the UK, or Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, just as that would sound really weird to Abram, so these names sound really weird to us some 4,000 years later. But it's an important thing to stop and notice what is going on. So... I've devoted some of this morning's sermon to that project. Well, essentially you have invading kings led by 
Shurlum, now see, even I can't do it, led by Cherdolamer, Cherdolamer, right? Cherdolamer is the presiding king. He's the head cheese of the invading armies, and he's king of Elam, that is an area east of Babylonia. It might help you to look at the map that I've included in this bulletin on page 5 and 6. The, the map on page 5 is the larger region. So you see Elam with Susa there, and Babylonia, and Assyria, and Mari. And so here we have this king, king of Elam, leading these nations, Goyim, that is the Hittites, Elazar, that's northern Mesopotamia, and Babylonia itself under King Shinar, or King, I'm sorry, the land of Shinar under King Amraphel. And so you have these eastern kings attacking what we call today the area of the Holy Land, right? Which is the area outlined on page 6 on the map. And you'll see the way that they enter and invade into Canaan from up north. They come up around, right? Now, the defenders are King Bera of Sodom, King Beersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemebar of Zeboim, and King of Bela and Zor, who the passage mercifully doesn't give our, his name to us. So, now what we need to understand here is that in the ancient worlds, these are not nation states as we think of them today. These are city-states, right? If any of you have studied ancient Greece or um, even uh, Italy at the time of the Renaissance, you know that there are these city-states where the cities would project power out into the countryside around them. Okay? And that's what's going on here. You've got these tribal kings, these tribal chieftains. And what happened in the ancient world is they would make treaties and covenants with one another because they quickly understood that if they weren't in league with somebody else, they'd be conquered. And to be conquered in the ancient world usually meant enslavement, rape, death, you know, all the bad stuff. It wasn't just like, oh, we fly your flag now, right? It was like the wiping out of your city, typically. So they band together. And so we have these two... These two um, uh, banding these two confederations, if you will, of the invaders and the defenders. And in addition to that, the big cheese, the head, the most powerful king, would take tribute and alliance when you went into relationship with him, when you went into treaty with him. You had to pay him, right? And so you had to pay him tribute, and you had to give him a portion of the fruits of your land, sometimes your women, Right? sometimes your wealth, depending on what he wanted, right? And so Cherlomater, or Chedorlamer, was demanding that, and we see in today's text that that's not going over well with the defending kings. And so they rebel up against him. 
You hanging with me so far? Over a course of 14 years, this rebellion takes root, Scripture tells us. And is Cherdor Lamer going to put up with this? Heck no! He's going to come give a whooping. And he has to understand in this world. If he puts up with one rebellion, the whole league is going to rebel against him. Right? He has to make an example of those rebelling. He rules by fear. He rules by power. He rules by having his vassal states in line. And so he invades. He comes down to bring back order to this shifted balance of power. And that's where we run in to Abram in the midst of this big mess. King Shurdalamer gathers his army and his other allies, his other vassal states, and he comes down the King's Highway, that trade route that goes down the eastern side of the Dead Sea and connects Africa and Mesopotamia. And as he goes, he conquers other city-states and other tribes, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites, right? And you can trace that with that red line. He goes down as far as the Gulf of Ereba, which is a little portion of the Red Sea at the bottom of the map on page 6, and then comes back through to the Amalekites all the way to the valley of Sidim. And in that valley is the great battle. That's the great battle. So read with me here at verse 8, verses 8 through 11 in the Genesis text. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. And Chedorlamer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of, Ele- of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions as they went their way. Let's stop there for the moment. And again, in the next verse, we see that we run into Abram's nephew, Lot. Remember last week, Lot chose and made a decision by sight and not by faith. He looked over the Jordan Valley and he saw that it was lush, but Scripture hinted to us that the wickedness of Sodom was lying close. Sodom, this wicked city, which was not yet obliterated, here we find Lot abiding in that city. Look at verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. 
So poor Abram is in the middle of this world war by their standards. But so far he's escaped. But now his nephew puts him into a most pressing position. For his nephew has been captured, his own kindred. His land has been threatened, that is Abram's, but he's kept with his allies, Mamre, Eshkel, and Anar, the Amorites, as his allies, and he's so far kept out of this war. But now war has come to his doorstep, indeed has come to his family. And it seems that world politics are conspiring against God's plan. After all, God had promised that Canaan would be his. But here we have all of these invading kings cutting it up and taking parts of the land and the wealth. And so this passage is intentionally asking us, the reader, as well as the ancient reader, will war and geopolitics thwart God's plan? Will this threat succeed? Of course, the answer is a vehement no, it will not. But there's another point, and that's the second point of the sermon, that God does not bless his people for them to do nothing for the cause of righteousness or God's justice. God blesses Abram and his people And they must fight battles, they must wrestle, they must strive for justice. Jesus reiterates this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 in the Beatitudes, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And sometimes that requires force. Sometimes that requires argument. Sometimes that requires banding together. Sometimes that requires Well, always, I should say, it requires and starts with prayer. And in Abram's case, it requires going to war. Look at verses 16 and 17. Then he, that is Abram, brought back all the possessions. I'm sorry, my eye skipped. It's verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen, that is Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Again, if you reference the map, you can see what this expedition looked like. But suffice it to say, Abram fields 318 trained men. Now that doesn't sound like much to us, but this is a formidable army in the day of city-states. Because you have to remember, these are 318 men in their prime, right? In today's army, that would be three companies of men and then some, right? Three companies of men. And uh, and scholar Gordon Wenham makes this point in his research when he states that the Elmarna tablet talks about armies at this time and says that this is a sizable army and that these men are the most loyal to Abram. And they catch the invading army, and they destroy it in detail, right? They come up at night, much as Gideon does later, and they go through the camp and destroy the army of the invaders. Look at verses 16 and 17. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, 
and women and the people. And after returning from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God. So here we have a transition in the text. You see, it's clear that God's promises are not going to be thwarted by this world war. And he gave Abram this overwhelming victory. Abram chooses to fight for a righteous cause, and he's spurred by his family's distress. At great risk to himself, he takes on these kings who have twice now defeated the other kings of the valley. And he takes them on himself and then with his allies. But in this next section, the camera turns, if you will, and we get a look into what's going on behind the scenes, into the spiritual warfare that's going on. And that's really important. If we just take this first part of this Genesis text, we don't understand exactly what's going on. Because in this second portion, we see the reality of spiritual warfare spiritual warfare that often is going on behind what we see in temporal warfare. It's often the case in world history. Sometimes it's more obvious than others. Who can doubt that the forces of the Nazis or Imperial Japan during the Second World War were spurred on by the demonic? All you have to do is look at the bitter fruit. But here we see the bitter fruit of the invaders as well as the victims. We see wickedness on both sides and Abram intervening. The destruction of souls is always the enemy's game. And the enemy can destroy souls and victims as easily as he can destroy them in victors, which is something we need to remember. Abram here is the victor, emerging against an evil invader. Many of the freed kings come back with Abram, free now from the invading kings. But among them are two kings in particular, Beersha and Melchizedek. Beersha and Melchizedek. And the contrast between these two kings can't be greater. Genesis is drawing us into the spiritual battle by showing us these two men. On one side, you have Beersha, right, whose kingdom is wicked, we've been told several times already, the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see once again that not only is the kingdom wicked, but the king himself is wicked. You, see, I, you say, I don't see that in the text. It's actually in his very name. You see, the name Beersha contains the Hebrew word Resha, which means wicked in itself. So this king's name is wickedness. And on the other hand, on the other side, you see King Melchizedek, who's king of a place called Salem, that is peace. And his name means king of righteousness. Preacher and commentator R. Kent Hughes makes the point that Psalm 76 and the teaching of the, of the rabbis identify Salem as 
what will become Jerusalem later in history. And so this priest, Melchizedek, this king, is also a priest of the God Most High, we're told, in the Hebrew, El Elyon. That is, the God who's the creator of heaven and earth. And that's how Melchizedek addresses this God. So you've got Beersha on one side, on one side whose name literally means wickedness and whose city-state is full of wicked people that have been captured and now freed. And you've got Melchizedek on the other side, the king of righteousness, the priest of peace, who worships the same God as Abram. And King Beersha offers Abram the spoils of war of Sodom, which are rightfully Abram's, because he freed Sodom. Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But God grants Abram the grace of hearing Melchizedek first in this passage and offers him particular gifts as a priest. Notice, what does Melchizedek offer Abram? Look at verses 19 through 20. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram by God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God the Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then look at this strange thing in verse 18, preceding that passage. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was a priest of the God of the Most High. What is going on here? Who is this Melchizedek? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Many people have posited things over the years. Some say that it's a pre-incarnate Christ, and there's a good argument for that. Others say that he's a prophet who foretells Christ. But Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, also talks about him. And as good Anglicans, we interpret the Old Testament by Scripture itself, looking to the New Testament. And so as we look at page 3, chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abram appointed a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Psalm 110 today speaks of this person also and says that David, the, the psalmist, talks about him who will sit on his throne and be a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. Now, you can see why some people think this is Jesus, right? No genealogy, no beginning or end of life. The sitting on the throne of David, that certainly makes a lot of sense. But of course, we can't say with certainty because Hebrews says he resembles, resembles the Son of God. Whatever we can't say, 
we can say that this man certainly gives great gifts to Abram in his victory. He gives him a prefigurement of the sacrament of Holy Communion in bread and wine. He blesses Abram, which is no small thing. He reminds Abram of God's faithfulness, and he testifies both to Abram and to the king of Beersheba of the God Most High. He gives great testimony to God, saying that it's God who has brought about the victory for Abram. And look how Abram responds. Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, the second half of the verse. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gives this man a tithe. And Hebrews says that this is because the man was so great. And this is Abram's reverence towards God, giving him a tithe. Scholar and commentator Meredith Klein notes with irony that while Chedorlaomer seized as tribute things for himself, those things ended up being paid to the true Lord of Canaan, the creator of heaven and earth, the God Most High. You see, the temptation for Abram here, the choice that lay before him, was would he take the world's tainted benefit, the wicked spoils of Sodom, offered by a wicked king, which were by right his, or would he take the blessing of God as given through Melchizedek? And Abram rightly discerns between God's blessing and the fool's gold of the world's benefits. He rejects the king of Sodom's offer and witnesses to God's faithfulness. Look at verses 21 through 24 back in Genesis. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkel, and Marmara take their share. So Abram rejects this wicked benefit that the king of Sodom offers to him and instead gives honor to the God Most High. Here is Abram standing firmly for his faith upon the rock of God's promises, saying, I don't need your tainted wealth, king of Sodom. I will have no part of your wickedness because God has prospered me and will continue to prosper me and has given me this land and his blessing. Do you see the spiritual warfare going on in that moral choice? Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what's offered to him? It seems like it's two goods, right? And yet Abram has the discernment to see that that's not all that what seems is not always what is. And Melchizedek plays such an important part here because he gives Abram insight into what's going on. We don't know whether Abram's faith was faltering as it had in the past. The text doesn't tell us. But Melchizedek reminds him that God has delivered the enemy into your hands and that he stands strong in faith and makes this decision. God will prosper him, and God will continue to prosper him. 
without the riches of Sodom. What does this text say to us today? How do we apply this, right? Sometimes it's difficult to look at Genesis and some of these old circumstances and say, what's going on today? But I think we can draw several principles. The first is that God promises, God's promises rather, will not be thwarted. Whether war, politics, spiritual war, conspiracies, God's promises will not be thwarted. And you and I need to hear that again and again as God's people because we forget it too often. We get wrapped up when we're under siege. And the truth is the church is under siege, as are you as baptized sons and daughters of her. Earthly wars disrupt, have disrupted those even in our congregation here. I was talking with one of our parishioners who actually had to flee his village in South Sudan because of an earthly war just earlier this week. And spiritual battles constantly being waged are constantly being waged against us in the church. Strange new doctrines that creep in, as Hebrews warned us last week. Our culture tries to pass off wickedness as good and virtue, as we see every day. And sometimes we wonder where it will all end. It can be very frightening. But I would call upon you to look at page 7 and question 1 as we think about this. Like Abram, often surprise happens in our life and seems to threaten God's promise. But how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Do you have that confidence that you should have that God will see his promises through and they will not be thwarted? Do you know, as a baptized son or daughter of God, you have his protection guaranteed to you as well as his hope? Look at the Hebrews passage once more, chapter 6, this time earlier, verses 16 through 19. For people swear by something greater than themselves, says the author of Hebrews, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Who are the heirs of promise? You, church, and I as sons and daughters of Abram, and more importantly, of Christ. Verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. To hold fast to the hope set before us. That is something promised to you by God's very word. Second point, God's people must fight for righteousness. We must hunger and thirst for it. Like Abram, sometimes we need to go on the offensive. Abram is wise, but decisive when he uses his resources of, of 318 men. And Christians ought not to wait around to be maligned by the forces of darkness. There's a strange idea that I'm seeing arise in American Christianity that somehow it's virtuous to have our rights as citizens trampled upon. 
we say, oh, this is suffering, and we deserve it somehow. And somehow people think that that's a show of devotion to God. That's not true. Christianity is not pacifistic. As C.S. Lewis points out, Jesus does not tell the centurion in Matthew 8 to drop the sword of a soldier. In the Anglican tradition, we're not pacifists, and neither are we separatists. We are not those that withdraw from society and leave the field of culture and politics. That's not who we are. We believe, rather, that the Lord will use us in change and conversion, and we are to advocate for what is righteous and in accordance with God's law in war, as in politics, as in our conversations. We should not embrace needless suffering, nor should we sit idly by while others suffer because our laws and our culture is being unmoored from God's divine law. It's getting too involved in those political battles that is a vice. It's in forgetting that there's a larger picture that is the vice. If we get too wrapped up in political action or too wrapped up in those types of things, we lose sight of the spiritual battle that is also going on. Yes, even going on for our very souls, ourselves. But we are not to shrink or shirk the responsibility that God has given to us to fight and hunger for his justice, for his righteousness. You know that I will never tell you how to be socially or politically active from the pulpit. I've said that time and time again. But that doesn't mean that we ought not to think through and discern what we should be doing in our culture and in our, politi- and in our politics. The, uh, and that warfare, that spiritual warfare that is behind it goes on within the church as well. False doctrines creep up. Syncretism, the idea that we blend Christianity with our surrounding secularism is constantly threatening, stemming from a desire to be liked by our culture rather than calling our culture to the Lord and to his divine law. Immorality also is a threat. Just this week we saw that one of our lay catechists was accused of very terrible things in the upper diocese of the Midwest. Some of, you might have, some of you might have read that. And unfortunately, it looks like that case has good merit. The enemy is constantly trying to destroy the church from without and from within. And of course, you in your own personal life face those battles as well. In your morals as a Christian, you have to discern and know how to fight for God's will in your life to stand on his promises, where to stand, how to stand, who to ally with, to keep yourselves pure. There's a reason that in the service of Compline we read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith. Like Abram's time, there are larger things at stake behind cultural, academic, and political battles, and indeed wars themselves. There are things worth metaphorically, and on the rare case, physically fighting for. There are individuals worth fighting for. 
There are people. But most importantly, we need to fight the spiritual presence behind them. Behind them. You see, it wasn't the king of Sodom who was the source of all that demonic activity that went in his kingdom. It was Satan himself, the adversary. As St. Paul writes to us in Ephesians, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And we fight first with prayer. Pray, friends, for righteousness, that is, godly justice and peace. Pray for our nation. Pray for our state. Pray for our cities. Pray for your neighbors, that the Lord would restrain wickedness and vice, and that his gospel would go forth. Finally, we need to seek God's blessing and not be confused by worldly benefit. To be confident in God's promises and then seek what he desires. Psalm 89, verses 9 through 11 reads, For the day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It's important for us to know just where our treasure is, and that is in the kingdom of God. In our gospel passage today, Jesus shows that the world's benefits are not what God's blessings are often. The spoils of this world are not like the treasures of the kingdom of God. His disciples are arguing about who's greatest. And what does he do? He takes a child and sets the child in the midst of them and takes the child in his arms. And what does he say? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. How do we hold on to the treasures of God? By serving one another, by standing for the truth, by loving each other, by bringing God's children to know and love him. Do not be lured away by worldly riches or schemes of power. It won't satisfy you. It won't make you happy. Rather, seek the king of righteousness and his righteous blessings and eat of his bread and wine. Be at peace and his blessing will follow you as you battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.